Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of On the Line. Today's guest is Lynn Enright. She is the author of Vagina, a Re-Education. And if you follow me on any social media platforms, you'll know that I had a full-blown love affair with this book. I couldn't put it down. I took millions of photos of me reading it in the bathtub, on the beach, on my couch, everywhere. I absolutely cannot wait to have this discussion. So, Lynn, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for your very kind words and your support. I mean, it's really true. I sent you a message on Instagram, and I was talking to my assistant. I was like, I don't think she's going to want to come on the podcast. I was like, I'll just ask her. But I was like, you have to come on. Oh, no, I'm (laughs) delighted to be here, and I'm always keen to talk vaginas and vagina re-education. I mean, this episode, when I put out the feelers and I told my audience that you were going to be on, I got such an amazing response. And I I think one of those reasons is because it's still a taboo subject for some reason. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's yeah, the deal? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I completely identify with what you're saying and that I think it is a taboo. And then the fact that it is a taboo makes it really urgent to talk about and people are really keen to talk about it once you start talking about it. And that's completely what I've realized since writing and publishing this book, that it was, you know, something that people feel they can't talk about. And so then when you do, there is a a real posh and and a real eagerness. So I've had so many messages. I've had so much support. I've 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 spoken about it more than I thought I would, you know. And it continues because I think that there is a a sense that we are really ready and ripe for this discussion right now. Ready and ripe. Well, do you consider yourself a vagina expert, or how, how did this whole <laughs> thing come about? This amazing book. Um. Well, no, I'm not an expert. I'm not a scientist you know I'm not I wasn't even really a health journalist I wasn't actually a health journalist but I guess I had been writing about women and women's lives for certainly like five years and I was working at a website called The Pool that no longer exists but I had been a founding member of that and I'd been head of news and content there and so working there with a bunch of women and and writing for a bunch of women and non-binary people uh, had sort of meant that I was, I I felt quite clued in to the conversations that were happening and the conversations that were landing and were important to people. And I could see that when we did stuff about infertility, miscarriage, abortion, these sort of subjects that are considered taboo there was a big response because I felt that people weren't getting to have those discussions 
as much as they wanted to, whether that was in their real lives or hearing it in the media. So that was definitely one part of it. And then also I just got to thinking how those kind of bigger issues linked back to basic issues like women not knowing enough about their own anatomy and the Eve Appeal and the gynecological cancer charity carried out research a couple of years ago that found that the average person, you know, around half of people couldn't correctly identify a diagram of anatomy, of female anatomy. And so I kind of thought, well, you know, there's that problem happening and there's the the sense that we aren't open enough about infertility, abortion, miscarriage. Those subjects are, are connected. And then Me Too as well, you know, um, the Me Too movement. Um, I was working at the pool. It became a really important topic for us. And I, I felt that there were connections, again, to these like huge kind of societal problems and uh, you know, these massive issues and, and thorny issues and complicated issues. But I I still felt that they were connected in some way to the fact that the basic information about vaginas isn't there. So that's really what I wanted to do with this book was kind of figure out why we don't have that information, wh- what's happened in our history and our education that we haven't been given all the correct information about our vaginas and then look at sort of filling in the gaps where that information isn't. Absolutely. And I really wanted to talk about um, sex education later on in the podcast, but I just want to read a little blurb about your book for those people listening who maybe have never heard of it or are interested in it. And this is just a little blurb I read on um, on Amazon. It's a, it says your book is about girls from their earliest childhood misled about their bodies, and they're encouraged to describe their genitalia with cute and silly names rather than anatomically correct terms. It confronts taboos such as abortion, miscarriage, infertility, and masturbation, and it also tackles vital social issues like period poverty, female genital mutilation, and the rights of transgender women. I really love that your book is so inclusive as well. I just wanted to to point that out. So I guess let's just start with basics here. The word vagina... And the word vulva. Mm. There's a difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So I guess most of us, I mean, after we stop saying, you know, silly words like front bottom, or in my case, we used to say little bottom. But um, (laughs) after we stop saying those, I guess we still continue to misname the area by calling it a vagina instead of a vulva. And I had always assumed that there wasn't really anything wrong with that, you know, that I thought, well, yeah, I know it's technically a vulva, but I call it a vagina and I don't think that matters. And then as I began to write the book, I realised actually it does matter. And there is there are feminists and philosophers and academics who have who have pointed this out before me. But, um, you know, if we call everything a vagina, we're sort of calling it all a hole and, you know, a place where you menstruate or a place where you can have penetrative sex, place where you can give birth, but you're ignoring the labia and the clitoris. And the clitoris is obviously where um, and how most women orgasm, certainly most powerfully and most easily. The clitoris is is the greatest thing ever. Exactly. Yeah. And and when you think about uh, the fact that we don't really say vulva and we don't we don't talk about clitorises that 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 much, I think that we we aren't hugely comfortable with the word vagina, but we're more comfortable with the word vagina than we are vulva and clitoris. Uh, And those are kind of 
areas of, I think, female agency and female power that can be over overlooked uh, and diminished by not naming them. So I am I've got much more strict uh, with myself uh, about using the correct term. So vagina is the muscular tube. It runs from the vaginal opening up to the uterus the cervix and then the uterus and then the vulva is sort of everything that you can see so you know your pubic mound and your labia and your urethral opening vaginal opening and uh, clitoris you know that's all the kind of vulva so if someone has a camel toe that's mm, the vulva exactly yeah you you can't see your vagina you really would have to go looking for a vagina so if you say i can see your vagina in those leggings that's that's very unlikely <laughs> Well, I guess another point I just want to bring up is like, if you can't even say the word clit, how can you expect anyone else to talk about it or do the right things to it, etc.? I mean, yeah. even when I just said it there, I was like, ooh, clit. Yeah, I still ooh. have that. I think, you know, it's 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 one of those words um, that has such weight. I, I, and, and I remember as a child or a teenager sort of, figuring that out and I thought initially that it was slang because you never hear it in any sort of like medical or educational context like nobody tells you about your clitoris I mean maybe they do now or it depends on what kind of home you grow up in but I certainly had never really heard of my clitoris so then when I started to hear the term I assumed it was slang and and, and then even for years afterwards I, I felt like I didn't really know it very well and then even uh, you know I was writing the book before I realized the full extent of the clitoris that it extends in, uh, inside the body um that was yeah and I mean revolutionary that, to me yeah when I read that I mean and I feel kind of you know there have been women telling us this for decades, you know, this isn't new information in this book, but I think it was new information to me and a lot of other women because even though there have been feminists educating us about our clitorises for decades and decades, the information doesn't stick and and it isn't made as widely known as it should be. So I feel like, you know, the a really good example of that is that when you think about the any of the diagrams that you see growing up about women's reproductive and sexual systems. So you'll see, you know, the the really, the one that everybody sort of knows is the vagina, the uterus, the fallopian tubes and the ovaries. And I think most people know that one and recognize that, but you don't see the the clitoris, the labia, the, the, the vaginal opening. You don't really see that diagram many places. You don't see the diagram of the clitoris, which, which you know, is really integral to understand your own body, that you should be able to sort of see it. Uh, and we don't see it. And increasingly, I think there is a, a move to to make people aware of what the clitoris looks like so that, you know, there is that visible tip that you can see outside the body but then it extends inside the body and there's a shaft and there are legs and there are bulbs and that's where you know that's where all those nerve endings are and and that's where all that pleasure is and increasingly I think there is a move to to show people that um, some French schools are educating children with 3D models of the clitoris and I just think that's probably that's really important, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I guess for anyone listening who's like, well, what's the big deal? Like, who cares if we don't talk about it? I think this um, section in your book really kind of um, summed it up to, up for me. It's on page 
four. I just wanted to read it out now. It just talks about the the sort of miseducation and how people don't really understand what's going on in their own bodies, like we were just saying. And it says um, that stigma leads to women foregoing orgasms because they have never been encouraged to seek them out. Stigma leads to women experiencing health problems because they're too embarrassed to talk to a doctor or a healthcare professional. Stigma leads to doctors failing to diagnose and treat endometriosis. Stigma leads to the president of the United States boasting about grabbing women by the pussy before cutting funding for family planning clinics and abortion providers. Stigma leads to the vagina and people with vagina being undervalued. And I think really that's what the fight is all about, you know? Of course, it's we need to know where it is, but it's more than that, isn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know these these basics of biology really extend right through every layer of society, um, and the fact that we are so sort of squeamish about our bodies does mean that we we give up some of our power. I think um, you know I, I, I know that the the you know we've known for for years now that Donald Trump boasted about grabbing women by the pussy but it's still sort of you know mind-blowing that that he was recorded saying that and that that didn't have an impact Mm -hmm. on him becoming president um you know it it didn't matter people people didn't care in the end And, and I suppose just to try and kind of unravel how we got into a position like that you know there's there there are many 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 different reasons uh a situation like that comes about. But I I do think that stigma plays its part. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So I guess sex education and um, teaching about it in schools is one of the first places that we can kind of tackle this. Um, What's going on with sex education and what can be improved? Well, I grew up in Ireland and I went to a Catholic state school and my sex education was not good, but I had assumed when I started to write this book that the sex education I received was, you know, an anomaly. It was poor, but it was something that was in the past and perhaps something that wasn't widespread. But actually, as I researched the book, I realized that most people get a poor sex education. Mm -hmm. So people in the United States generally, it's quite common to get a poor sex education, even a sort of deceitful sex education is quite common in in the United States, actually. That is something that's just so fascinating Mm. to me. And it's something that I can relate to a lot. I mean, when I think back to my one sex education class that I had, I was in grade seven. I might have been, I don't know, 12 or 13. It's really horrifying when you really think about it. Yeah, I think that, you know, there are mistruths downright lies in in sex education. I I had that. I think that the United States is is quite bad for that. In the UK, I I presumed that there was just a really sort of robust and good sex education. I don't know why I presumed that, but that was my misconception I had. But when I started to look into it, I realised that there are some schools and some teachers who do provide a really good sex education. But the standard throughout the UK mm-hmm. is very, very patchy. Um, they're just, it, it isn't a sort of curriculum-led, very clear area. Some some teachers will have taken an interest, some schools will, some local councils will, but, you know, in every school there isn't a really good sex education. Now, there is a new curriculum on the way 
which I think is is good, um, is a good thing. And there are stipulations um, that mean that, that every school will have to do it. So at the moment, academies um, don't have to teach sex education. But for, when the new curriculum is brought in, every school will have to sign up. Sometimes parents will still be able to remove their, their children from classes, which I think, you know, is a bad thing. And also I've, I've, I've looked at the curriculum guidelines and they're not, they're not really far-reaching. It's not like, whoa, this is going to revolutionise everything. Right. Um, because I think there's still a fear that if you equip children with the facts, I don't know, I guess there's a fear that you'll sort of make them all like sex-crazed. And, and that's just that's just not what the evidence says. You yeah. Because uh, the Netherlands is the country that has probably the best sex education in the world. And they have... Um, they teach, you know, they start it at a really young age and, and four-year-olds have, you know, relationships and sex education classes, but they're not, you know, they're not learning about sex, really. They're learning about relationships and the different relationships a person can have and they're ending up, you know, safer. And then also there's there's evidence to suggest that people actually have sex later um, in the Netherlands as sex education has become more robust uh the the age at which people lose their virginity ha- has become older so you know you're not you're not encouraging people to have sex by telling them about their bodies and about possible relationships you know i just think you're making people safer and and you're also encouraging gender equality because i think so much of the the sex education so many of us received in Ireland, in the UK, in Europe, in in the States, in, in all over the world, has been has had gender inequality kind of sewn into it. I think because there's this you know essential fact that you get pregnant when you have heterosexual penis and vagina sex and the man has an orgasm and that's mm-hmm. how pregnancy occurs uh, and preventing pregnancy is is very often um, an aim of sex education that we've sort of put that you know at the center of sex education and then we've often almost placed the responsibility on girls mm-hmm. um you know that boys have this sort of really powerful sex drive and it's almost like your job to manage that that's certainly right. what a lot of people i know growing up felt. Absolutely. I mean, just going back to your point about teaching four-year-olds about relationships, etc. I mean, surely it's just amazing to even get those conversations going and being open even about talking about friendship, relationships, Mm. all of those things. I mean, I learned about sex through basically my friends at school who were boning people when I wasn't. You know, it was really like that. Mm. And Speak about miseducation. I mean, you learn the most random, weird, unhealthy things, you know. So I do think it's really important to teach it in school as well as not everyone's parents are super comfortable talking about it. I never had one chat with my mom about sex. Yeah, I had one, and and she's my mum is like is, is very open, very kind, 
um, forward thinking in lots of ways person. But I guess it is, you know, it is awkward or it certainly felt awkward when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s. And I did, we did have one conversation. And I think that has been a sort of, that has characterized sex education as well, that one conversation. So I had like one class in primary school and it was like, well, now you're ready. Mm -hmm. And I had one chat with my mother. And actually, if you think about it, it's something that, you know, continues it's a really big part of of all of our lives and kind of one half an hour isn't enough and and again with the Dutch approach with you know starting very young you're having these conversations uh, but you're just as well sort of allowing for other conversations to take place Mm -hmm. and allowing for an openness you know. Do you think there ever will be a time where you know a lot of girls aren't embarrassed to talk about sex and and they'll really, you know, the majority of people will take ownership and and be a part of the sexual revolution? Yeah, I don't know. It will be interesting. I mean, I think that's just such, yeah, it's a very big question. But I do see my friends who have kids now, and I see the way they talk to their little girls and boys. and, and, And I think that there is an increased openness. Now, that's like a very, that's like just anecdotal. Right. It's just people I know. But I have noticed that, and yeah. I do think that that is is happening. Um, certainly, you know, I live in London, and so among 30-somethings in London, they seem to talk to their kids with more openness. You know, mm-hmm. like, I, I don't know about the whole world. Um, so I think that that will make a difference. I think that, you know, these discussions we're, we are having about, about sex, about sexual abuse and sexual assault uh, about rape I think that those conversations are around um, and and hopefully there will come a point where we can where that makes a difference I suppose because at the moment I, th- I find it's very hard to know whether all the talking we have done about me too yeah let's say has has really made a difference because, you know, like we were saying, Donald Trump is, is still mm-hmm. um, the president and, and you know, he was just recently accused again by, by, by a woman uh, of sexual assault. And, and you just, you know, so it doesn't actually seem to have made a difference. But then at the same time, I think that, you know, people are more aware, mm-hmm. you know, certainly men I know and, and parents I know. Uh, and, you know, there is... Um, there is more awareness about consent, and and then I suppose that we kind of, you know, it'd be really nice to to then to get through to another point where we can we can talk about sex in a more joyous way again, yeah. you know, because I guess in in the culture for the past few years it's been it's been quite bleak, really, a lot of the chat about sex. Absolutely, I mean, just. You know, I spend my life on the internet. I've had my whole career on the internet. And I think for me, just noticing the different types of conversations that are going on now, even compared to three or four years ago. I mean, I I totally understand your point of feeling like, is anything even changing because of all of this talking? And sometimes I feel the same thing. It's like, what, what are these tweets doing, you know? But exactly like you mentioned, when I come across different parents and I come across, you know, different guys I'm dating and stuff it it seems to have shifted something yeah I think so and I think that the idea of sex positivity has 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 sort of is getting increasingly mainstream I I feel like when I was growing up uh 
women, and I, I, I already said this, but but women were sort of, you know, thought to have to manage male sexuality. Mm-hmm. So sort of like that was this really powerful force. And girls uh, and, and young women were sort of there to like manage that, to sort of, you know, try and get a boyfriend from that or try and sort of, you know, string somebody along until, you know, all that kind of stuff was, was in our culture or like try I mean, so many people I, I talked to left school like terrified of STDs and pregnancy like yeah. really really terrified like kind of to to a quite an anxious degree and actually I think you know obviously it's really important that we learn about those things but it's also important that we learn about what the the clitoris is and that there's this sense that sex can be a positive thing mm-hmm. and I think increasingly I think you're right I mean, again, I don't know. I, it's, it's anecdotal, but I feel like in conversation, I feel like on Instagram, there is a, a, a sense of sex positivity. Absolutely. I mean, sex is fun if it's consensual. <laughs> yeah. It really is. Um, so I actually have a call-in question, and I'm hoping you can dispel one myth that I think a lot of people have. It's about vagina hygiene. So let's play the question. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, Estee and Lynn. This is Rosa from Amsterdam in the Netherlands. My question for you is about hygiene down there. When I was growing up, my mom taught me to never use any kind of soap on the vagina, to not mess up the natural pH balance, etc. But now there seem to be more natural products on the market. And I honestly don't know the best way to keep everything fresh and clean and also healthy. I would love to hear your thoughts and experiences. Thank you. Bye. I love this question so much. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot because when I was growing up, it was like, don't use anything. It's a self-cleaning oven. Mm -hmm. And exactly like the caller said, there's all these natural brands. Mm -hmm. And then I interviewed um, Marie from this probiotic um, beauty range. And she said, we need to balance the pH. What has your research shown? Well, I mean, I guess... It's it, it's confusing because I think that, you know, 
again, it comes back to the vagina and the vulva. So, like, the vagina, yeah, I would say it is a self-cleaning oven. The vagina, but that is the bit inside you, right? Right. So that's the bit that you really kind of, you shouldn't clean, let's say. And, you know? and that literally means stick your fingers up your vagina. Don't do that. Don't do with that. Soap. Yeah, yeah, don't do that with soap. Don't do that with um, a douche. You know, that's a, we don't really use douches in the UK and Ireland. Uh, you can buy them in, in the supermarket or in a boots or whatever. I don't know if you can get them in a boots, but in a big uh, pharmacy, let's say. Yeah. But they're quite rare. But then I remember going to the US when I was a teenager and going to, you know, like a Rite Aid or whatever and just seeing like, a, a, a huge aisle of of vagina related yeah. products, including douches, uh, and and we just we do, I did not grow up with those, but douches are bad yeah. pretty much. Um, anything that you can, yeah, there's no need to 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 ever kind of go to the vagina and to clean the vagina. You might there might be an issue, like you might have bacterial vaginosis or an STD and you might notice uh, a smell or a discharge and in that case yeah you're you're going to have to do something about it probably antibiotics or, or medication but still don't don't kind of take it upon yourself to go up there you should probably you know go to a doctor or a sexual health clinic mm-hmm. and then the vulva well i kind of treat the vulva like normal skin but like sensitive skin right because it's like mucous membrane and sensitive skin so I think you know you you can wash that but there's but then you also need to realize that you know it will it will smell sometimes and I think that you know that's that's just normal like vulvas do smell yes and and that's not something to be ashamed about you know and if it's really hot it will smell differently if you've been exercising it will smell differently if you've had sex it might smell differently um if it smells really unusual or or really bad then you go to the doctor right but that's kind of I think that there's so much anxiety about about washing because we've been taught to be ashamed Mm -hmm. ashamed of it of it ever smelling, ashamed of what it looks like. And then I think there is increasingly a a market of sort of vagina and vulva beauty products. Yes, I've been noticing this. Yeah. And and in a way, I think there's something positive about the fact that, you know, you can go on like a, a quite chic beauty website now and see products that are for vaginas and vulvas. And, and, you know, I think, you know, it's it's nice to see those words in these in these spaces. And yet, you know, mainly they're they're products that people don't need. Right. And it's just a little bit concerning when, 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 because when there isn't a clear need for a product, traditionally what happens is people create that need mm-hmm. by making people feel insecure. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of my my take on on vagina. Well, cleaning. I think that's the most clear answer I've ever got out of someone on this subject, and I agree wholeheartedly with you. Okay, so kind of going back a little bit to anatomy, I really need to talk about the hymen. Mm. Page 34, guys. <laughs> <laughs> there are diagrams. Speaking of fear around sex, of fear of getting STDs, fear of getting pregnant, Fear of breaking my hymen was like the most terrifying thing to me at age whatever, 11, 12, whatever it was. I was so terrified and I 
I didn't know what to expect. I don't even remember ever, ever breaking it, though. Um, so let's talk about the hymen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that in for a lot of people, they grow up with the idea that a hymen is like a sort of seal uh, of their vagina. And so, you know, it, 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 it exists really clearly as a, as a seal that everybody has and it's broken the first time you have sex unless you break it before with a tampon or or with like horse riding yeah. or something. Literally, like, I yeah. remember like going for bike rides and thinking, oh my God, I could break my yeah. in today. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, you know, that idea is is pretty false. The hymen there does exist, but it differs from girl to girl and woman to woman. So some people will have quite a kind of visible hymen, uh, and some people will actually will be born or or certainly will reach puberty without um, having a hymen, or or it, or or it might just kind of. Um, fade away you know it's 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 just a piece of sort of mucous membrane and so it can really differ from person to person um it's not this seal it, it it's not proof of of virginity and, and you know some people will bleed the first time they have sex um and and some people won't and, and there's no difference between those except for the way that their their body is mm-hmm. and hymens are different from person to person and you know i think because it's it's doesn't really have a biological function it's quite different from person to person it's quite mysterious in a way and then the hymen has has become more like a symbol and a symbol of purity and virginity and women's purity and women's virginity and i think it's been incredibly unhelpful and continues to be incredibly unhelpful you know there are especially some cultures um Arab culture places a, a lot of emphasis on, on the hymen and women who have had sex before or who don't have a hymen will face problems and, and discrimination and, and even violence if they don't bleed right. on their wedding night. Yeah, that was a really interesting part of the book, actually. Um so I, I actually have a, a question that I was really interested to hear about. And I think that speaking of, you know, hymens and everything else, it's like we need to speak more about different women's experiences. Um, so I just wanted to play this next question for you. Hey, SD, my name is Rowan and I live in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I'm so glad you're talking about vaginas and women's health today because I have a condition that's called vulvodynia and it's something I'd never heard of and my friends had never heard of, um, but I'm still learning about it and I'd love to raise awareness about it. So vulvodynia is basically a chronic pain condition that affects the entrance to the vagina. Um, and I'm pretty sure I've had this my whole life because I remember the first time I ever tried to use a tampon, um, and my friends telling me that it hurts maybe the first time, but you get the hang of it and to relax and all these things, but I've always found it to be incredibly painful, um, and just impossible at times. Um, I've been to the gynecologist and thankfully they'd heard of this condition and were the ones that... Um, diagnosed me with it. They have since prescribed me with two different topical treatments that when I used them only aggravated the area more and actually caused me quite a bit of pain for a couple of days after using the treatments. So I guess what I want to know is if Lynn has ever heard of this condition um, and if she has any advice or treatment options or things that I should try. Um, and I'd also just love to hear you guys talk about this and see if you've known anyone or have experienced 
pain in your vagina before. It's pretty terrible. Um, and no one talks about it. So that's why I'm here. Anyways, love the podcast. And uh, thank you so much. Have a good one. Yeah, I mean, I I personally don't have personal experience with vulvodynia, but I did speak to people who do for, for the book. And it is quite common. And it is, it can make, you know, like the woman said, using a tampon really painful, but sex can be really painful, feel sort of impossible. Even sitting down, you know, and, and, and it, it can feel excruciating. What is it really? It, it, it's quite mysterious. Um, <clears throat> and the problem is, is that the research just isn't there and hasn't been done. And, and, and it has been a taboo as well and something that has been passed off and minimized. And so it, it's quite mysterious. Like doctors don't 100% agree on what it is. Mm-hmm. The treatment options that aren't very clear. So, you know, like that caller said, she was, she, her doctors did take it seriously, but then the treatment she was prescribed actually exacerbated the situation or, or seemed to make it worse. So it, it's not clear. Um, and there is I think because there is stigma surrounding the vulva there's stigma surrounding conditions affecting the vulva mm-hmm. um, I spoke to a woman for the book who had found that she had um, gone to physiotherapy to a physiotherapist who um, specialised in this area and that had helped and and sort of stretching the tissue with a with a wand almost actually internally had helped her vulvodynia. Mm-hmm. I know somebody else who, who was prescribed antidepressants. There's a particular antidepressant that you can use in a low dose that will help with vulvodynia. Wow. Um but it is an area that needs so much more research. Right. Um so much during this book it was just like more research is needed yeah. um you know this women's health has been overlooked and 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 then you know and then when you get into it you realize that you know women of color's health uh, even worse you know the the mortality rates for black women black pregnant women in america you know so much worse than than white pregnant women so you realize that there's just these kind of layers of 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 neglect uh with women's health and vulvodynia is one of those i think as well there's this sense um with women and 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 vaginas that women's bodies are painful and women's vaginas are painful so right. you know we get periods and that that's really painful and you're just told well you know that that's that's life and obviously you can you can take painkillers you can take the contraceptive pill and those things might help but essentially it's like a monthly pain and that's something that you have to live with um pregnancy and well childbirth childbirth is excruciating and and that's kind of the reality and 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 sex often you know there's a sort of writing off as sex as as painful and I think even in sex education even talking about hymens there's this sense that you know well yeah it it will hurt and, and we don't really talk enough about why it will hurt and how to make it less painful you know instead of just saying to to young women yeah sex the first time is really painful. We should be talking to them about how it's less painful if you're really aroused, and, and or it's less painful perhaps if you use a lubricant, you know. But we don't. We just kind of just just accept that there's this sort of fundamental pain to the vagina and the vulva, and then when we do that, we sort of overlook 
really serious conditions like vulvodynia, you know, similarly endometriosis. Yeah, can we speak about that? Mm. I mean, I I have a few friends who have it and I remember them saying that, you know, they they were having experiencing all this pain and problems and they went to the doctor and it was a very similar situation. The doctor just basically saying, "Well, yeah, that's going to hurt." You know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So, how do you know when it's when it's not just like, you know, the, the the pain that we're used to feeling versus something really yeah you know, worth talking to a doctor about yeah I mean it's really hard and and I think that it's really hard to sort of know when to go to the doctor if you've been told all your life that periods are really painful and you will feel terrible um I suppose if you sort of notice any changes that's always go to the doctor mm-hmm. um and I suppose also I I hate to have to say it, but I think sort of take notes and make a case. I think that sometimes I I know that I've I've done this that I get quite flustered that the doctors or sort of just trust them and and you know in the UK I, I I love the NHS and and I really respect it. Obviously, it's under great strain, and then you go to the doctor and you realize you know you only have a very short amount of time, and. And, and it can feel like quite a rushed, intimidating yeah. environment. And then, you know, I think that a lot of us grow up with great respect for doctors. And I still have great respect for doctors. But that can mean that you're, you know, you feel cowed or intimidated. So I think, you know, take notes and and, and sort of make, make notes, t- write down the dates that you experience this pain. Sort of go in with a very clear idea, not of what you want because they are the expert, but a very clear idea of what you want to say mm-hmm. and what you want to tell them. Um, you know, it, endometriosis, people have suffered with it for years, usually before they get a diagnosis. And, and then often because it's, you know, it's happening inside their bodies and it can have really, really grave consequences. You know, organs can become fused and people can become infertile and people, you know, obviously can experience incredibly excruciating chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And so it's really an incredibly serious um, condition that we need to, again, there needs to be more awareness of mm-hmm. and, and, and doctors need to kind of step up a little bit mm-hmm. with it too. I mean, there's also PCOS, which mm. um, one of my best friends was telling me that she has. Um, you know, it's like all of these things, uh, going back to sex education, it was never discussed. These are all things that I learned about in my mid-20s. Yeah, yeah, that is true, actually. Yeah, it, I think that we're sort of a little bit... Uh, not filled in on our own health and our own bodies. And I think, you know, there's, there, there are reasons like these are conditions that are quite difficult to diagnose. And I accept that. But it does also feel that there's kind of a, a sense that they don't really matter. You know, I'm um, accessing fertility treatment at the moment. And I had gone to the doctor for years with symptoms of fibroids and and PCOS and and neither of those things were taken particularly seriously until now I'm I'm accessing fertility treatment and I I will be having IVF and then they kind of take it very seriously because it might affect the outcome of that treatment but they didn't take it seriously really in any way when I just said 
I'm in pain or my periods are irregular or I have adult acne or, you know, with the fibroids, it was like I have these incredibly excruciating, long, painful periods like this. I, I, I can't have that. It's, and it had changed. And it just, I have to say, it wasn't taken particularly seriously. But now they're taking it seriously because it might impact the results of IVF, which is a very expensive process, mm-hmm. that, you know. So I think that there's, we need to have probably better healthcare for vaginas, vulvas and our reproductive systems that isn't necessarily to do with pregnancy mm-hmm. or fertility. Right. That that's that's about just kind of women's health yeah. and women's comfort. Well, I don't remember the exact quote, but something that I had never thought about and and you said you I think you said you hadn't particularly thought of particularly thought about it was, you know, your whole life you think about preventing pregnancy mm. and then you come to a point where you think you're just going to get pregnant. Mm. And and speaking on on that subject was really interesting to me because I've never thought about how I'm going to get pregnant in my life. Mm. Yeah, I think it's like you're sort of told, like, don't get pregnant, don't get pregnant, don't get pregnant, don't get pregnant. Get pregnant, get pregnant. Why aren't you pregnant? <laughs> yeah. That's what it feels like as, as a woman. Um, and so I think, you know, necessarily we are taught about preventing pregnancy when we're young and that's a real priority. And then there hasn't probably been enough discussion about getting pregnant. And even people I know who have had kids and 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 haven't needed fertility treatment but they've still been really shocked by the fact that you don't get pregnant you know necessarily probability you don't get pregnant the first time you have unprotected sex that it it usually takes a bit longer especially as you get older so you know because we sort of talk to teenagers because teenagers and people in their early 20s are, are more fertile um and all of these discussions are really difficult to have, I suppose, about fertility because I feel like there's so many different reasons why a woman might not become a mother in her 20s, 30s. You know, why why she might wait and, and, and they're to do with money and the housing market. You know, it's 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 pretty it feels pretty impossible for for most millennials and um, to get a house and so you know you sort of feel like you probably do need a house or at least a two bedroom apartment to be to be in a position to have a, a child um you know the cost of childcare uh all of that and, and so we need to it's it's very difficult to talk about because there are so many different reasons um and then and then, you know, there is this sense that you you may have left it too late. And that feels like a really horrible burden that that a woman bears compared to a man. Um, because as well, we don't really talk about male infertility very much, you know, in, in our culture and our society, when actually 50% of, of non-age related infertility is to do with male infertility. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. So we're just we're just not really set up to talk about that. And, and I think you see, if if a couple is experiencing male factor infertility, they will have IVF or a certain kind of procedure of IVF called ICSI, and that happens in the woman's body. Really, you know. So it kind of comes back, the way we treat male factor infertility comes back to the woman and the egg and IVF, really. So we're sort of, it's easily glossed over, male factor infertility. And, and you know, I'm not saying that to try and kind of make men feel bad that that they too can be infertile, but just to sort of try and open up these 
honest conversations because I think that can really help people because, you know, couples experiencing infertility can feel really alone and like it's only you know happen to them when actually it's like one in six or one in seven couples experience mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. absolutely honest conversations i mean what a concept yeah <laughs> just really speaking honestly so switching pace a little bit i want to talk about the joys of sex mm-hmm. actually let me go back to to the subject of labioplasty before mm-hmm. we get into okay. to that i just okay. wanted to touch on that because yeah. i got a lot of um questions written in about women saying that they were embarrassed by the way their vulva looked and th- that they were you know too shy to have sex because they didn't necessarily look like they thought a vulva should look so what is labioplasty and what's your opinion on it um yeah labiaplasty so surgery to kind of resize or reshape the the labia usually the inner labia is the fastest growing type of plastic surgery in the world wow um now that doesn't mean that it's really really commonplace um but it does mean that it's growing at a fast rate so people are increasingly getting it um i find that really depressing mm-hmm. i must say because yes it is sometimes necessary and and, and some women who have it might have a very good reason for it that you know their inner labia are much much longer and they find they find like sports painful or running painful or sex painful and and they might make that decision for themselves and their own body Mm -hmm. but a lot of people who are getting labiaplasty and and young women especially um are doing it because they feel like their labia don't don't look a certain way. Don't, you know, their labia are asymmetrical. So one one inner labia is longer than the other. One side's longer than the other. But that is like, that is so standard. Like that is like very few people have these kind of labia where the inner labia sits really neatly inside mm-hmm. the outer labia and everything just looks really symmetrical. Like that's that's really rare. But, you know, I guess... One of the problems is is that we don't really talk about vulvas. We don't really see vulvas. Like I said, we don't have very many diagrams of, of vulvas. So then when young people see mainstream porn and they see the vulvas of mainstream porn, they're seeing vulvas that have likely had labiaplasty. So those porn performers probably have had labiaplasty or they've been chosen to be porn performers because their labia are like super photogenic or mm. whatever, you know. And so then young people are seeing those labia and thinking that that's what all labia look like. Yeah. And I mean, imagine watching porn as, you know, a teenager and and not seeing yourself represented mm. in that way. I mean, of yeah. course, you're going to get self-conscious yeah. about it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's another reason that sex education really needs to sort of step up here because kids do have access to porn. You know, we, we, we can't pretend that they don't. And whatever your views are on porn, you know, I don't think that porn is necessarily an evil thing, but I do think, it, at all, I don't think that, but I do think it's it's unhelpful and unhealthy for young people to, ha- to, to, to see porn without having any sort of sense of, of, of the reality right. of bodies and of sex. Uh, and so I think that we need to educate kids. Absolutely. Um, and we need to protect kids as well, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that should be a priority. I think there's so many issues that, that come from from the kind of widespread 
uh, internet porn, but 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 one of them, yeah, is 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 letting girls know that the labia they they see in porn isn't isn't kind of the standard mm-hmm, labia. Mm-hmm. Well, I could do a whole podcast just on porn. It's mm. such a vast subject. Mm. But let's switch pace a little bit to the joys of sex. Mm-hmm. Speaking of porn, let's talk about masturbation. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved when you talked uh, spoke about masturbation in the book, and it brought back a lot of memories for me. Talking about the boys at school talking about like jerking off and all this stuff and the girls never spoke about it girls don't masturbate Mm. no of course we don't masturbate because we don't get pleasure from sex Mm -hmm. like that remember that actually happening so let's talk about masturbation first of all because i still meet people in my 30s well i'm almost i'm i'm 29 almost i mean friends who are in their 30s who have never masturbated wow yeah that was that's my reaction wow Mm. No, and I think, you know, they're probably in a minority, but yeah, they exist because, you know, I think that it's really powerful for us all to grow up in in a culture that tells us that we shouldn't and that and that we don't. You know, I think there is a a big lie about it. Um, I think that absolutely is the case that girls grow up thinking that boys masturbate and there's this idea you know in our culture that that oh it's we're a little bit squeamish about it but it's sort of funny that we think you know teenage boys turn into these like masturbating kind of like gross little little boys for a couple of years (laughs) And, and girls we just we just that's much more taboo right um which you know is is so weird when you think about it it really is peculiar yeah and and then I guess I guess I grew up thinking, you know, that nobody I knew talked about it. The sex education books didn't didn't talk about it. I remember a sex education book that talked about wet dreams for boys, and, and so I thought that you know boys woke up every morning like having these like really sexy dreams, and and it never talked about how girls also have sexy dreams. You know, uh, they're rare though for me, yeah. sadly. <laughs> And so that was a real shock when uh, I realized girls could have sexy dreams too. But I think it's, yeah, it's back down to a fear of female sexuality that we mm-hmm. just kind of don't allow people to to own that and that we're very, very, very squeamish about girls. We are. Masturbating. I mean, I remember... Uh, I think it might have even been my stepmom who was like, just take a hand mirror and look at your own vagina. She meant vulva. Yeah. Um, And I remember doing it and thinking, this is so embarrassing and it's attached to me it's me you know why is it and I think it's a similar situation with masturbating for a lot of people it's like there's this it is shame yeah yeah I guess it's 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 shame yeah I mean I guess that's true and you know I think that some of that exists probably it depends on the individual and uh, it depends on the you know obviously on the individual circumstances but you know maybe something even more individual like the the the, the person they are and, and the way they interact with their body and then also you know I think some people find it really easy to orgasm okay so right. I think some people will grow up and they'll find a way of masturbating that works for them at a very young age and some women won't mm-hmm. and so I think there are differences you know both in psyche and literally in the biology which means that everybody's different and, and some people will derive lots of pleasure from it some people won't but I think what 
can be said to be true for almost everyone is that there is a squeamishness in the culture. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of orgasms, what are the different types of female orgas- orgasm? Well, I guess what I feel like it isn't particularly helpful to even divide them into types um, because there has been a sense in the past to decide whether something is a clitoral orgasm or a vaginal orgasm or a blended orgasm, which is both clitoral and vaginal. Uh, And then once you start to sort of categorize them, there's been like a pecking order that, you know, vaginal orgasm, that's the best one because, you know, you can get there via penis and vagina sex and then... You know, it can be like a movie where you and your partner come at exactly the same time, whereas clitoral orgasm where, you know, you kind of might have sex and then you might, you know, touch yourself or your partner might touch you or you might use the vibrator. That's kind of seen almost like cheating. And, and you know, that's just really stupid. Uh, and I think that, you know, we should be if you have a good orgasm, you should be happy to have a good orgasm. And it doesn't it doesn't matter whether it like derived from like a particular part of your anatomy. And and anyway, increasingly, you know, we sort of realize how the clitoris extends inside the body and, yeah. and how well, can it can we talk of, about that like mm. in actual detail? Yeah. I I I couldn't believe my eyes what I was reading about the clitoris. Yeah. So basically like when an embryo is in utero for the first few weeks um it's male or female kind of is the same and they have the same sort of genitals and then and then one bit uh develops in 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 male babies develops into the penis and then in female babies generally develops into the clitoris and so that that's kind of the basics and actually the the clitoris is is you know because the penis is outside the body but the clitoris is mostly inside the body but there is a shaft of the clitoris which we don't see but which is inside the body and then there are these kind of legs which extend into the body and and then and they they grow larger when you're aroused and then there are these bulbs and and so they sort of surround the vagina and so let's say you know it depends on on, on people's individual anatomies but most for most people you know if you're having a uh, a good time and, and you're having penetrative sex and you're feeling sensation in your vagina, it, it's it's quite likely that it, it's it's the kind of inner part of the clitoris mm. that you're actually sort of engaging with there. So, yeah, it's 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 very complicated. It's also, you know, the, the data isn't there, that the, all the research isn't there. Orgasms remain sort of mysterious you know it isn't 100% clear what's happening in the body and the brain at, 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 at every given time and orgasm you know what exactly is an orgasm yet yeah, like there might be sensations and pulsing in the genitals you might be able to track those but that isn't necessarily the orgasm because some people will have an orgasm and report an orgasm without having those so it's very difficult to to, to say definitively the, what exactly scientifically an orgasm is, where exactly it happens. So really the best thing that you can go for is, you know, just sort of hope that you have an orgasm and one that's good and be, be pleased that that happens and that, you know, whether you're on your own or with a partner, that, you know, that happens and it's good. That's what matters. It is good. <laughs> it Can't sleep, have an orgasm. That's all I got to say, guys. It's the best thing. Um, So I was not going to do this podcast without mentioning squirting. 
Oh, okay. And I have one last caller for you, and she was obviously on the same wavelength as I was, so I'm going to play the question. Hi, Este. Thank you for introducing me to this book. I'm really excited to read it. And thank you, Lynn, for taking my question. My question is, why do women squirt? The information that I can find online seems to always be centered around what is squirt. Like, is it pee or not? Which I guess is a valid question, but there's nothing that I can find about why women do it to begin with. What is the biological reason behind it? Why do some women do it and other women don't? What's the deal there? Thank you. I love this question. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I think that that's like one of the things that kind of keeps coming up. I don't know. uh, And people don't know. And also kind of the biological reason. And actually, you know, a lot of the time with stuff, there isn't a biological reason for stuff. Like, why do people, why do women orgasm? We don't know. There is no biological reason for that. Why does the hymen exist? There is no biological reason for that. And so I think that when there isn't a clear biological reason for something, people can start to like read into its meaning and, and use it as a symbol almost. And sort right. of, so I don't think that there is a clear biological reason for squirting. I think that, yeah, as the caller said, there's loads of of discussion and debate about whether it's um, pee or, or not. And I would say it, it, it depends as well. Like a small amount is, is usually is, is not pee. It's, it's, it's a fluid it, uh, created in a gland. But I suppose it's become this very... Um, it's almost like a measurable thing, and that's why it's become a, a, a porn. Uh, its trope. own category. Yeah, its own category. Yeah. So, because it it, it it's a really visual way uh, of of kind of saying, yeah, I came, or yeah, I enjoyed that. So, because it's very visual, it's become very common in porn. Whereas, actually, you know, it's probably not. It's not that common, but yes, some some women some women do it, and and it's not we're not quite sure why we're not one hundred percent sure what's in it, um, and and it's just kind of a normal part of our bodies that's become fetishized in some right. way. Is it pleasurable? I think some women do it when they orgasm, so I I don't know that the the exact moment of squirting is pleasurable, but it has come about because they have experienced pleasure and because perhaps they have relaxed or, or that part of their body has, you know, some, something has happened in, in that part of their body. Right. Um, but it is quite mysterious and, and I don't have all the answers. Mysterious is the word for it. That is for sure. Well, you know, this subject, there's just so much to talk about. I wish I could talk to you for another two million hours, but... The studio will charge me double. Um, Was there anything in this, you know, during this time of you writing this book that you were like, I really wish I could put this in the book, but you just couldn't fit in? I'm not sure. I think that, you know, as I've said loads of times, you know, I don't know. I don't know everything about squirting. I don't know everything about the orgasm. I I don't know everything about vulvodynia. And, And yeah, I'm not an expert, but still there are people who are experts who don't know. You know, a lot of it is 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 mysterious. And in some ways that's kind of interesting, but in some ways it can mean that, you know, people suffer with pain or bad sex or 
you know, problems that they, that they shouldn't have to because there just isn't enough research, data, um, you know, there isn't enough done to, to make life better for vaginas and vulvas. So that's what I wish would happen. Mm. Are there any other books on this subject that you recommend or that you read while doing your research that you thought, ooh? Yeah, there's a reading list at the back. There's a great um, graphic book. It's like, um, you know, like a comic book book um, called The Vulva Versus the Patriarchy. It's, I think she's Swedish. She's, she's definitely Scandinavian. That's really good. It's, there's an English translation. Um, Nimco Ali has a book coming out um, about vaginas. Um, I think it's out this week. So it's out June 27th, I think. And she um, has done amazing anti-FGM work. So I'm really, really pleased to see her book coming out. There's just there's a there's a whole load of vagina books coming out, actually, which is incredibly brilliant. Uh, you know, I think that we are sort of living through a bit of a, a vagina moment. Um, you know, maybe 2019 has been the year of the vagina and I couldn't be more thrilled to be part of this. Absolutely. Well, it has been so fascinating talking to you. And to those of you listening, no matter how much you think you know about vaginas, vulvas and clitorises, I can guarantee you will still be surprised by things in this book and you will find yourself nodding along with so many things. I cannot recommend this book enough. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you so much for having me. Where can people find you if they want to follow you? I'm on Instagram, Lynn Enright, Twitter, Lynn Enright. Yeah, that's it really. But yes, I'm there. Thank you so much. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. 